Good morning. Great to see you all. Looking forward to some tasty, spicy Honduran pork in a few months' time. Although South Africa always wins this competition. Always. Great to see you guys. We're, uh, we're going to do something a little bit different today. There's like fury happening on the front row here. Can you guys pipe down, please? <laughs> As most of you know, we've uh, been going through the Old Testament in our preaching series today. We're actually taking a break from that to look at something else. From time to time um, throughout the series, we'll pause and we'll take a week to consider something else. We'll kind of catch our breaths and then we'll dive back in. But today, I want to look at something which has been um, buzzing around in my head for some time. And uh, my motivation for this is to help us to run well the race that God has marked out for us. And I want us to be aware of the times that we live in and how to respond to them so that we can run well for him and with him. We live in tricky times, and it's important that we understand and can interpret our culture in order to live in it and respond to it. So the title of my talk this morning is simply this, What is Truth? And the question that I'm hoping to answer is, how do we recognize and live for truth in a world that just won't stop lying? And I've been really helped in my thinking, and I'll be leaning on this quite heavily today by a book uh, by John Mark Comer, which I'd highly recommend, called Live No Lies. I think uh, John Mark Comer is one of those guys who's got just a wonderful gift at calling out our culture and summarizing some of the ways in which it uh, deliberately or inadvertently undermines faith in God. I think I've now got to that age that uh, wherever Whenever I turn on the news or listen to a podcast or read a newspaper, yep, some people still do that, or listen to any number of experts on any number of topics, I instantly start to get annoyed and begin this internal dialogue of argument with them. And uh, some of that is literally just being a grumpy middle-aged man. But I, I think most of this, in reality, is just that our world is bonkers, and it's a wash with opinions and voices and attitudes and signposts that tell you how you're meant to live and what you're supposed to think. And for the most part, I think these voices just don't make sense, or they lack logic, or they contradict everything that we're supposed to live for, or in a worst-case scenario, they're just plain untrue. And so I want to spend a bit of time this morning just opening our eyes to this stuff to see the symptoms of our age and trying to diagnose the disease well so that we might recognize it when it comes at us and know how to respond and treat it. Hence, what is truth in a world that just won't stop lying? One of the uh, underlying problems that we'll consider today has its modern roots in something that the ancient great Greek uh, thinker Protagoras said. Protagoras is regarded as the father of relativism, which essentially means that truth can't be absolute. It's relative to your own experience. Attempting to explain the nature of reality, Protagoras essentially said in the fourth century, your truth, whatever is true for you, is true, and whatever is true for me is true. In other words, so long as you believe it, and it makes sense to you, well, then that's a valid form of truth. Or to put it another way, truth is always relative to self, hence relativism. I can disagree with your truth because I've cooked up a different version of the truth 
based on my own criteria. But the obvious problem in this scenario is that where you have two different versions of the truth, they essentially cancel each other out, and you end up with no truth. We'll see how that plays out a little bit more as we go through the morning. There's just you and your experience and me and my experience. And the factors that shape and decide that experience of reality can be as diverse and as arbitrary as to whether it's preferable to drink Pepsi while standing on your head or to eat an apricot while skydiving. It's really just all about what works for me. It's completely arbitrary most of the time. And I believe that this disease, this failure to have a standard for the truth is getting worse and is an increasing problem for humanity because the world is full of wrong opinions and contradicting viewpoints and untruths. That's why we're living in an age where the highest prize is the freedom to self-identify, to just be yourself. We need an external measure of what's true. Oprah Winfrey has famously said, all that matters is your truth. Not the truth, your truth. It really doesn't matter whether you're right or wrong or what anybody else says or does or how it affects others. The ongoing refrain of our age is, you just do you. It's why philosophers and sociologists have been telling us that we live in a post-truth age. What a terrible situation to find ourselves in. We've dispensed of the truth. The truth is so 2012. We're post-truth now. We've reached a higher level of enlightenment. Look at us. Who needs truth? We are the makers of truth now. We, each and every one of us, can just make up our own truth. We are like gods who can define our own reality. And the problem, of course, is that we live in an already created world with predefined laws of science and reality. There is a truth already written into the fabric of the universe and into every human heart. And as we'll explore this morning, this truth is defined by God who created truth in the first place, by his character and by his purposes. Protagoras wasn't the first person to attack the structures of truth, of course, although his shadow looms large in our culture. This is actually a much older problem. It's probably the oldest problem of all. This problem starts really in the Garden of Eden, where the serpent deceives Eve by challenging and undermining God's truth. His first recorded words, Satan's first recorded words in Genesis 3, did God really say that you must not eat from any of the trees in the garden? No, we can eat the fruit, but not that one. We're not ready for it, and if we eat it, we'll die. His second recorded words, you won't certainly die. There's an objective standard of truth in what God commands here. Don't eat from that tree. This will not do you good. Satan challenges Eve's understanding of this truth with a, a subtly different version. And Eve takes in that thought, and it shapes her, and this different version of the truth causes her for the first time to say, yeah, that makes sense to me. And they eat the fruit. And the whole of creation comes apart. And that's the world we live in now, post-truth. In the book of John we'll be looking at this morning, we find one of the most fascinating conversations in the Bible to kind of 
highlight this problem. It's a conversation that happens between the Roman governor Pilate and Jesus, as Jesus stands before him, accused of sedition against the Roman state and of blasphemy. And Pilate's got a real problem here, because the Jewish religious leaders want Jesus dead for what they consider to be blasphemy. How dare this guy call himself the Son of God? And they've raised the blood of the people who are now also calling for his death. But it's confusing, because so many of them have seen and recognized and experienced the presence and the power of God in Jesus' ministry. So the whole city is kind of in uproar. It's a, it's a tinderbox just waiting for a spark. And Pilate's solitary job as Roman governor, as Caesar's representative in Jerusalem, is to keep the peace of the Roman Empire and to ensure the long-term submission of the people to Rome and to secure taxes. So he has a problem, because on the one hand, the peace of the city is teetering on a knife edge, but on the other hand, in order to condemn Jesus, he needs to assess whether he's broken any Roman laws, which he hasn't. And so the Jewish leaders drag Jesus before Pilate, and they say, here you go, condemn him. And so here we are this morning in John 18, verse 29 to 38. This is the conversation. So Pilate came out to them and asked, what charges are you bringing against this man? If you were not a criminal, they replied, we would not have handed him over to you. Pilate said, well, then take him yourself and judge him by your own law. But we have no right to execute anyone, they objected. This took place to fulfill what Jesus had said about the kind of death he was going to die. Pilate then went back inside the palace, summoned Jesus, and asked him, Are you the king of the Jews? Is that your own idea, Jesus asked, or did others talk to you about me? Am I a Jew? Pilate replied. Your own people and chief priests handed you over to me. What is it you've done? Jesus said, My kingdom is not of this world. If it were, my servants would fight to prevent my arrest by the Jewish leaders. But now my kingdom is from another, in another place. So you are a king then, said Pilate. Jesus answered, you say that I'm a king. In fact, the reason I was born and came into the world is to testify to the truth. Everyone on the side of truth listens to me. What is truth? retorted Pilate. There it is. That's the question we'll explore this morning. What is truth? The Greek word for truth used in the writing of this gospel is aletheia. That word kind of means it's a, it's a richer word than we might use to explain what truth is. We might, we might explain truth as the opposite of a lie, but it has a deeper meaning. It's more like, what is the actual, fundamental, uncovered reality of something? What's the revealed essence of this thing? And because Pilate has no objective measure of truth, it's all up for grabs. He's staring truth directly in the face. Truth, as in Aletheia, the truest, most revealed, fundamental essence of reality. The deepest measure of how we can know anything at all. The revealed Son of God right there in his court. The God who creates and shapes everything and by whom we are brought to life and given breath and meaning and purpose. He's looking him straight in the face, pure Aletheia, and he's totally missed it asking, what even is truth anyway? It's one of the most tragic moments in Scripture. And within a short few hours, Jesus is hanging on the cross. It's what happens when the truth is relativized and built around ourselves. 
It's Eve and the serpent again. It's what naturally and logically must happen when we fail to recognize truth and live by it. Death and disorder is always close behind. What is truth? What is truth in a world that has lost sight of the aletheia, the truest revealed essence of what anything means at all? What is truth in a world that makes up its own standard of truth according to its own momentary fleeting purposes? A friend and I were chatting about this recently, and he reminded me that we've just seen this in our own headlines. Prime Minister, did you and your staff break COVID lockdown rules by attending illegal parties? I tell you what, there are lots of different ways of answering that question. I can't actually be sure, even though there's a picture of me in a work meeting with a bottle of champers and a bloke wearing some Christmas tinsel around his neck, but I tell you what we'll do, we'll hire somebody, we'll get Sue Gray to investigate and come and tell us. I can't actually tell you the truth of the matter. The truth is, after all, open to interpretation. So let's get somebody else to come in and tell us the truth. The Washington Post calculated that in his first year of presidential office, Donald Trump didn't not just defend the truth, he actually made 2,140 misleading claims. That's 5.9 lies a day. Fake news. This is the office of the man who is entrusted to do the same job as Pontius Pilate. Defend what's right. Keep the peace. Create well-being and welfare for all. That number actually went up through the course of his presidency, and it reached a peak when the capital, the very seat of democratic truth, was overrun by rioters. When we fail to see and live by the truth, death and disorder are not far behind. And the thing about this fake news, it's a subtle kind of problem, really, that we need to be aware of. Isn't that we're just being forced to believe something, necessarily? It's the drip-feed undermining and erosion of the foundations of what truth actually is, chipping away at it. Fake news, fake ideas, fake truth. And so all day long, we're bombarded by everybody else's view of their own personal truth, and we hear and we believe these things, and ideas, as we know, are powerful. They shape us if we believe them. I'd be happier if, I'd be more successful if, I'd be stronger and get a foot up over my fellow man if. And if what we're believing and how we're being shaped is based on lies rather than truth, well, just look at Eve in the garden again. It's a highway to death and chaos of all sorts. So a huge part of our problem is the battle against ideas that have no basis in truth without any means to measure the validity of those ideas, other people's ideas. Our own ideas of what's right or wrong in the absence of a measure of objective truth. And ideas are all pervasive, and they're difficult to battle against. How do you fight against a tweet? How do you fight against a Facebook status, and what difference does it actually make? I often think that, with no offense intended to any gardeners out there, arguing with people on Twitter is about as effective as using one of those leaf blowers. You kind of blow the leaves away, and then they, the first gust of wind, they all come back at you and bring their mates. This problem is now so endemic to our own culture that in the UK, we actually have a governmental minister for disinformation. 
The Secretary of State for Digital Culture, Media and Sport has, as part of their job, the responsibility for upskilling children and adults to recognize online falsehood and to develop the critical thinking skills to be able to tell fact from fiction online. We have a minister whose job it is to help us to tell truth from lie. Only 40% of adults actually have those skills, according to Ofcom, the UK's communication regulator. If you've got kids under the age of 15 who are on social media all day long, that figure drops to 2%. It's all gone a little bit wrong. I don't know if anyone's come across the Philip Pullman novels or the TV adaptations called His Dark Materials. It, uh, it tells a story of a young girl called Lyra Balacqua, who is on a quest through multiple dangerous universes. The purpose of the quest isn't important this morning. But the only means for her to know the right way to go as she navigates this confusing, dangerous existence is a little device that she's holding up there that she's come to own. And everybody is after this device. It's called an alethiometer. Alethia. A device which tells the truth and reveals the deepest essence of what's right. Philip Pullman, who wrote this, is an atheist. But in his story, even he sees that in the fight against all that is wrong with the world, what we need is a means to tell the truth and to show us what is right. We need an alethiometer of some sort. We need an external measure of what's true. Because when your head is full of Protagoras, or Pilate, or Oprah, or 5.9 lies tweeted a day with no defense against it all, what happens is that we become the creator and judge of our own version of the truth. And I could stand here and spend all day long explaining why that's problematic. But here's just one. What happens when what I think is right about the way to live? My truth clashes with, say, Oprah's truth. When we have no objective external measure to decide, then who's right? If my truth is that we should just chuck loads of recycling into the sea and warm up the planet, I wouldn't mind a warmer winter. How about you? I'm obviously being facetious. Don't worry. We should all recycle and take the problem of climate change seriously. But I'm trying to make a point this morning. When we don't have an external measure of what's true, the only place we can go to cook it, up ourselves, cook it up is inside ourselves. If God's truth, if the aletheia that holds all things together isn't sufficient, then what do we do? We remove God from his throne and we place ourselves on there. And we say, I am God. I'll decide what's right and wrong and nobody else can tell me otherwise. Have you noticed how deeply offended our culture is at the moment? How everybody is taking offense at each other's views. How dare you tell me how to live and what I can and can't identify as. How dare you tell me that my truth isn't truth. If I think I'm a cat and you think I'm an accountant, I'll be deeply offended by you and I will just cancel you out of my life. The Harry Potter author J.K. Rowling has got herself into all sorts of bother in recent years over something similar. One of, one of the things that got her in trouble was her objection to the phrase, people who menstruate. Rowling basically said, why don't we just call people who menstruate what they are? Women. Why can't we just say women? Why can't we just tell the truth? And I get it. I get how that might hurt and offend some people. Irrespective of who you are, I want you to know God's grace and goodness towards you this morning. That's the whole 
point of the sermon. But the basis of Rowling's argument is to be protective of people. She's saying that there's a fine line here. If we completely do away with stereotypes of sexuality, if we let clarity completely slip in this area, that this could actually put women at greater risk of harm. If a dangerous man identifies as a woman in order to gain entry into a woman's only space, or vice versa, that poses a serious risk. So she's saying, well, we need to find the line here, the objective truth that's in here somewhere. It's dangerous for us all if we don't. Let's just call a spade a spade, if even only for that purpose. She's pointing out an inconsistency in our culture as herself, someone who suffered at the hands of a predatory male. J.K. Rowling, cancelled. Her book sales, cancelled. Her name dropped from schools, the worst sort of bullying and abuse directed at her on her Twitter feed. Here's the problem. When we have no sense of objective external truth, when everything can be truth, then what you end up with is just no truth at all, or a kind of pseudo-truth based on what you had for lunch that day. And that means that in this world of making up your own truth, when you and I disagree, I'm not just disagreeing with what you think and believe. As the pastor Matt Chandler says, I'm disagreeing with your very personhood. It's not that I just disagree with parts of what you stand for. If I disagree with your version of the truth, then I'm disagreeing with everything about you. I disagree not just, for example, with your political stance, but with all that you are as a person. And of course, you'll be offended if that's what you think. Conversation and debate then become irrelevant. Offense becomes the new moral arbiter. We become increasingly polarized from one another and suspicious and hostile. And the only way to break the tie is a show of power. So we either go to war or somebody gets canceled. That's what's behind the rise of cancel culture and the pressures on our right to free speech. And when we cancel all that we disagree with or are offended by, what are you left with? Protagoras and Oprah. Make up your own truth. This failure to recognize truth is also a major contributor to the confusion and contradiction around all sorts of other moral and ethical issues in our society too. In our society, we fiercely fight for the right to live as we want to live and to be what we want to be. And on the other hand, we've developed systems of thought and legislation that allow us to value and even end some lives over and above others. In Roman-ruled Jerusalem, you could simply dump unwanted lives on the smoldering rubbish dump outside the city walls. Life was cheap. Jesus challenges this thought. He challenges the notion that any sort of life, of any sort, being valued above another. To Jesus, all life is valuable and God-given. It's another irony of our age that the very basis for modern human rights and personal freedoms have their origin in the truth and teachings of Jesus. You are made by God. You are loved by God. You are highly valued by God. God has decided you're coming and going. There's a deep inconsistency in our thoughts. It's a confusing and confused world because our society has lost sight of what is absolutely true and from whom truth comes. And we've made it all up ourselves, and it's both metaphorically and literally killing us. 
We've fought for self-expression and freedom, and we've completely enslaved ourselves to confusion and inconsistency. That's what always happens when we replace God, the almighty God of truth, with the not-so-mighty God of self. Death and decay and disorder are never far behind. This above all, to thine own self be true. Does anybody know where that line comes from? Come on, Grace, you're an English teacher. It comes from the Shakespeare play Hamlet. Anyone know who said it? Yes, well done. Who said that? Nick, excellent. I owe you a chocolate. It's said by the character Polonius. He's referred to in the play as a fool. Known throughout the play for his foolish dialogue. Literally the worst bit of advice in the context of living for the purpose for which you were designed is to thine own self be true. Back in the garden, Eve was to her own self true. What lies have you been fed and are you believing now? What death and disorder is plaguing you? In what ways do you feel like you're not good enough, that you're not worthy, that your life decisions are unforgivable, that you'll never know freedom and victory over your struggles? It's disinformation, all of it. Fake news, poor ideology. It's all lies. How do I know? It's because we do have an objective standard for the truth. It's God and his word. And that means that I can actually measure every single thought and every attitude and every single opinion against what I know to be true of his character and purposes. We'll get into that in just a moment. But let me start by saying that all of these faulty beliefs are lies according to the character and the purposes of God. I'm not for a minute saying that things aren't difficult or even that they shouldn't be. I'm just saying that whatever you're believing about those things might need, with respect to the Secretary of State for disinformation, some critical thinking against what we do know to be true. Is what God has said consistent with what I am thinking and feeling about this matter? That's the standard. At my worst moments, what I've needed to remember and stand on is the truth as defined by God and his word. That's always served me well, and when I've not done so, I have suffered. And this is so much more than just a personal issue. Knowing and recognizing and speaking truth is at the heart of the way that our society and culture survives and thrives, or decays and dies. And that's important because Colossians 1.20 tells us that God is reconciling all things to himself. Every broken part of creation that is tainted by the fall is within scope for God to bring healing and wholeness back to. And that therefore becomes our work too. And that means that as we operate in this world, we're also meant to challenge and shine a light on lies. It was, after all, a lie that created this mess in the first place. And we are to witness to the truth that Jesus is Lord, that Jesus is in control, that Jesus can be trusted, that Jesus has a plan for you, that Jesus has a plan to restore creation, that you are and can be included in this plan, that your sins are forgiven, that in Jesus you can be healed in body and soul, that yes, things are not as they should be, but that Jesus is at work in the world reconciling people to himself one person at a time, that you are invited in and that in Jesus, victory in all things is possible. 
That's the truth. And none of it, none of it involves me being the Lord of my own life. Polonius said, to to thine own self be true. Jesus says, whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves and take up their cross and follow me. Think about the countercultural implications of that invitation. You want to follow me and discover Aletheia, the deepest knowledge and truth and meaning that there is? You've got to deny and die to self. Forget to thine own self be true. The cross of Christ allows us, bids us, invites us to die to self. The only way to know life in Christ, to live this life right, is to die. Dying to self is the beginning of knowledge because as we die to self, we create room for and discover that there's an empty throne in our hearts waiting for the king to come in and inhabit it and rule. It was for this purpose that we were created. Do not to thine own self be true. Look to he who is true. Listen to what Jesus says about himself in this matter. Pilate asks, what is truth? A few hours earlier in the Garden of Gethsemane, Jesus is praying and he says to his father about us, Father, sanctify, cleanse them by the truth. Your word is truth. Pilate asks, what is truth? In John 14, 6, Jesus tells his disciples, I am the way and the truth and the life. You want to know the truth in a world that lies? Look at Jesus and everything that he says. Pilate asks, what is truth? In Revelation 19, we see this picture of Jesus in victory, waging war against the powers of hell, defeating Satan and death fully. He's wearing many crowns, it says, and the armies of heaven are riding behind him. And in verse 11, it says this about our warrior king. He says, I saw heaven standing open, and there before me was a white horse whose rider is called Faithful and True. How do we know and experience and share in his victory? John 8, verse 31 and 32 says, Jesus said, if you hold to my teaching, you really are my disciples. Then, if you hold to my word, you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. How does that happen? It's simple. We were all made by God and made for God. We are born longing for God, and our deepest desire is to know him and to be known by him. And so it's obvious If that isn't your experience, if you haven't recognized that, then you'll be gasping for the pure oxygen of his life in all sorts of other things that life offers up. And it'll filter into your lungs, and it'll pollute you, and it'll shape you. If you put a polar bear in the desert, it will die. It wasn't made for that environment. So too, there is only one environment that we were made for. It's to be with God. Brilliantly, in the third century... St. Augustine said that all of our problems come down to this, disordered loves. It isn't necessarily that we love the wrong things, but that we love them in the wrong order. We most deeply desire God, whether we know it or not. He is who we are primarily meant to love. And if we don't realize that desire, if we don't accept that truth, then we'll love all the wrong things in all the wrong places. We'll make up a version of the truth that we think will satisfy, but will ultimately destroy. He wonderfully also said that all truth is God's truth. 
Pilate's question is as profound and important a question to be able to answer as there is. The truth is Jesus. The truth is every word that proceeds from his mouth. The truth is his word. The truth that there is only one way to know freedom and a deep soul rest. That's to abide with him, to know him, to be known by him, and to completely surrender to him. He who alone on that final day will be recognized by all the nations on earth as faithful and true. In a world totally confused by itself, full of people who are utterly self-absorbed and trying to create a version of the truth to help them to stomach everyday existence, there will come a day when the trumpet sounds and every eye will look upwards as he descends in glory and the whole earth will proclaim, ah, yes, of course, he is the faithful one. He is the true one that I've been searching for my whole life. What is truth? Jesus and everything that he stands for is truth. I want to just take a few moments to give us some paradigms to consider as we navigate this stuff, some thoughts to take into the week to help to kind of land all of this. Here are five either-or options for you. If you want to know truth, if you want to avoid the deception of the world and make sure that the right God is on the throne of your life, hint, it isn't you and me, by the way, then here we go. Number one, prayer rather than ideology. Ideas aren't inherently bad, don't get me wrong. Bad ideas are bad, and they're bad for us. And there's a, a battle that exists in the mind between what we tell ourselves will make us complete and what God tells us will. Our thought life is in the front line of the battle for the truth. Over 40 times in the New Testament, the writers tell us not to be deceived. And oftentimes, the warning is to not be deceived by a fine-sounding argument like the ones we sometimes hear or tell ourselves. You'll be happier if, you'll be richer if, you'll be more powerful if, you'll be adored if. The antidote to this is a rich prayer life. When we pray, we seek the truth of God. We speak truths in line with his word, and we recognize that the highest authority in our lives exists outside of ourselves, and therefore, we are shaped when we pray. We're shaped by prayer. If you don't know where to start, just pick one of the many prayers that are spoken in Scripture and recite it out loud. Hannah, David, Mary, Jesus, Paul, wonderful examples of prayer in Scripture to give you a model for conversation and relationship with God, which is what it's all about. Yeah. The second thing, Scripture, not Protagoras. I won't labor this point, but Protagoras tells us to create our own truth, and we've seen where that has got us. Scripture the Word of God is unbreakable and infallible and covers every part of life. It is the standard of truth. Jesus himself said that man does not live by bread alone, not just the sustenance of what this earth offers up, but on every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. It is the standard by which we can measure every other pseudo-truth. I want to know how to think about law and order, politics, sexuality, race relations, finance. It's all in here. We talk about the stuff every Sunday. Best three words of advice I can give you this morning. Read your Bible. Number three, restraint, not hedonism. In the front of my Bible, just in these kind of, that part there, I've copied the life lesson of John Wimber, 
and I've written in large black letters the word restraint because I have to remind myself when I come to God's word and to living by it that I'm not in this to satisfy me, to make me Lord of my life and to do so at the expense of others. And that requires me to constantly keep a watch on what would easily become unrestrained desires to do so. We live for the other, the other person, and for God. Fourth thing, community, not isolation. Someone said that a coal that rolls away from the fire will just go out quickly. We need one another to do this stuff, to remind each other of truth, to speak the gospel back into each other's lives, and to cheerlead us back home to Christ. Self-reliance is harmful, and it always asks the question, what do I need, rather than, what is God's will for me? There's no quicker way to slipping into the deceit of the world than to isolate yourself from the community of truth. And finally, Christ not self. Truthfully, I think I've said this about a hundred different ways already this morning, but you really are, and I really am, am not the sum of what is real, and neither is our personal experience. That's not to say that your personal experience isn't valid. We're flesh and blood creatures, and we feel things, and painful things happen to us. What I'm going to say about this, as I encourage you one last time to look at and to stay close to Jesus, is this. To quote Dane Ortland, your suffering doesn't define you. His does. It's all about Jesus. I've tried a number of different ways to summarize the whole Bible, the entire gospel, down into one sentence. And time and time again, I come to this conclusion about life and humanity and history. It's all about Jesus. Brothers and sisters, my prayer for you is that you will know life in all its freedom in Christ, the only way, the only truth, and the only life, as you look to him and daily invite him to take his place on the throne of your life. That truly is my deepest desire. We've covered some really hot topics this morning, and I would just love to speak to you if any of that stuff has caused any kind of um, uh, discomfort for you this morning. I genuinely want you all to know the grace and the goodness of God in your life. And as you look to Jesus, you will know him, and then you will know truth, and the truth will set you free. Let's pray. Jesus, I thank you that you have said that you alone are the way and the truth and the life. We recognize that we do, we have always lived in a confusing world that is at odds with your word and your will. That's part of the fall, we recognize that. But Lord, we want to take our stand against this morning, against the lies of the world and for you and your purposes and your word. And so, Lord, I pray that supernaturally, by the power of the Holy Spirit, where that might be a struggle for people here this morning, you would go to work in our lives. Open our hearts, open our eyes, open our minds again to the wonder and the mystery and the majesty and the clarity and the grace and the love and the kindness and the clear instruction of your gospel truth. Lord, I pray, help us to stand strong for you, to run this race well for you, to be a people of truth who live for truth and bring honor and glory to your name. Amen.